Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to ours and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Matt Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. This brother and this family had the hard job. Because a lot of times you can't understand what God's doing. Because you bring your own agenda. Jesus was sitting here to die. And had he not, things wouldn't be the same. John Brown who few people know about. And let me tell you something about the universe of God. When God picks you, it leaves no footprints. You don't have to be validated by the New York Times or the Washington Post or the White House. God picked you. That's all that's needed. And that's how we got to where we are now. The strongest two forces in the history of America has always been the black woman in the black church. That's how we got here. That's what saved America. The NAACP, a hundred and something. If you think it's bad now, think what it was like a hundred years ago. And where'd they come out of? The black church. Huh? And they didn't hide. Everybody knew who they were. One person. Look at my friend Amy. Look at There's no show on the whole planet like yours. And when I think about there was some hassle going on and they had the vote. And my vote determined if you're going to be on or not. One person. One person. It don't make no difference when you understand. So I said thank you, NAACP. Thank you, black church. Thank you, black woman. One, 
with his two sons at Harper's Ferry. And because of that, that's what caused the Civil War. And that's why when the Union soldiers was marching, they were singing, John Brown's body is a molding in the grave. Huh? One man. With the help of a whole... Abraham Lincoln's death. The Emancipation Proclamation wasn't no law. That was a, a war movement. After they killed him, that's when they gave us the 13th Amendment. One man's death. Huh? And you black folks got to be careful about 13 is an unlucky number. The 13th Amendment freed you. Freed you. Emmett Till, huh? Changed the whole planet. I asked Rosa Parks one day, just the two of us, how'd you get the courage to do that? She said, I just couldn't get Emmett Till out of my mind. Thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Those were the words of Dick Gregory at the funeral services today of Troy Anthony Davis. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we're going to be examining the issue of faith. Does it, as Dick Gregory says, take only one man? I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. With my guest tonight, joining us once again at Our Common Ground, the author, Jeff Charlotte. He has a new book, Sweet Heaven, When I Die, Faith, Faithlessness, and the Country in Between. In our second hour, we'll be joined by James Girac, who is a board member of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and he is a former Cook County, Chicago prosecutor. We'll be talking about the premiere of Ken Burns' The Prohibition on PBS tomorrow night. I'm Janice Graham. Stay tuned. I'll be listening for you.
to Troy Anthony Davis in Savannah, Georgia, at Jonesville Baptist Church. And we joined in both the sadness and the celebration, the sadness of the past and the celebration of a renewed commitment to bring justice to the meaning and the path of his life. And I hope that you will join us. We'll be talking more about that. In this first page at Our Common Ground, we are so pleased to have Jeff Charlotte, the author and professor of English at Dartmouth College, joining us. He is a nationally uh, best-selling author of The Family. You would know him. That book is described by Barbara Ehrenreich, as one of the most compelling and brilliantly researched exposés you'll ever read. As a result of the book, she was so shaken that Ann Coulter designated him as one of the stupidest journalists in America. <laughs> Charlotte is a Mellon Assistant Professor of English at Dartmouth, and he is the college's first tenure-track professor of creative non Fiction and a contributing editor of Hopper's Magazine and Rolling Stone. He began writing in 1990 at Hampshire College as a student of Michael Lessie, author of Wisconsin Death Trip, and in 2000 he teamed up with the novelist Peter Manchot to create KillingTheBuddha.com. Jeff has been a guest here at... Uh, our Common Ground, and he is a Mellon assistant, which is professor of English, uh, which is big stuff in the academy. From 2003 to 2009, he was a research scholar at New York University Center for Religion and Media. He has spoken at universities across the country. You have probably heard him, read him, Mother Jones, the New Yorker, The Nation, The New Republic, The Washington Post, Salon, and you have certainly heard him at, as a contributor on MSNBC, NBC Nightly News, The Bill Maher Show, on HBO, Comedy Central's Daily Show, and other media outlets. He is currently working on another book, The Hammer Song, a short book about pop, folk, punk, sex, riots, and the Cold War, but he joins us tonight at Our Common Ground to talk about his new book, which hit the bookshelves on August 15th, Sweet Heaven, When I Die, Faith, Faithlessness, and the Country in Between, and we are so pleased to have Jeff Charlotte with us. Jeff, are you there? I'm here, Janice. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being um, able to join us tonight. I want to tell you before we get started, I love the story of how uh, your own personal experience in this book, and um, that is visiting an old girlfriend. I love the idea that, but I would not want to be you, and I don't know how many days it took to get through an interview with Cornell West on the issue of faith. <laughs> <laughs> and I also want to tell you that I, I personally met Shaba Rosenfarb. No kidding. With the Holocaust 
a survivor and the Yiddish novelist. Yes. Um, back, um, you know, Jeff, I'm not a youngster. Uh, <laughs> back in the 70s when um, I was the public affairs director for the uh, Unitarian Universalist Service Committee. Mm. And we were traveling in Israel. And I, I met her at the time. So thank you again for being with us. And let's try to get our audience. Uh, some of you may not have read the book yet, but you should. It's posted in our chat room. And for those of you who are listening, you may join us in our chat room at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. Jeff, one of the things that I found so interesting is that you wrote this compilation of essays between two books that you were writing, because you were really getting into, you really challenged the ideas around our culture and and belief systems. And and I'm just, I I, I thoroughly enjoyed this book, and I'm on my second reading now. Well, yeah, the two books, uh, The Family, uh, which I published in 2008, uh, and C Street, which I published in 2010, The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, and C Street, um, which was sort of a sequel uh, on the oldest, uh, and arguably most influential Christian right organization, political organization in Washington. Um, and the first book I'd done the history of the organization, and the second book I was looking at their impact in the world. And um, really at the heart of that book is a, a kind of very long passage on um, the East African nation of Uganda, where they have, um, I would argue, wreaked terrible havoc, uh, terrible, mm-hmm. terrible havoc. And so I was immersed for, you know, uh, eight years in this, Authoritarian fundamentalist subculture, and um, and uh, that's how I do my journalism. I immerse myself in, in that culture, and I was, you know, living mm-hmm. with these people, talking with these people, falling around these right wing politicians, and and you know, not reporting from afar, but up close. And every now and then, I would just need to go off and tell a different kind of story to keep myself sane. And the way I describe it, the motto of this group, the family. And, and and really, you almost could say, you know, of fundamentalism. They used to use this pretentious little bit of Latin. They would say that they create a space for politicians to get together and make decisions beyond the din of the vox populi. Beyond that, what that means is beyond the voice of the people. That they didn't they didn't believe in the voice of the people. They believed in one God, one way, one interpretation, and one power. Theirs. Well, that's not. To me, what has always interested me in writing about religion is the great cacophony of voices, of many voices coming from different directions. Um, the you know, I'm fond of quoting the worst president in American history. It wasn't George W. Bush. It was James Buchanan leading right up to the Civil War. One good line he said, people were trying to sort of suppress debate, and he said, I like the noise of democracy. And I think this book, although it's stories, as you said, about a Yiddish writer, Hava Rosenfarb, and the great philosopher Cornell West and a trip to go see my old girlfriend has become a political figure. Uh, it is in some ways my attempt to bring the noise of democracy to, to sustain myself with the noise of democracy. All these different voices of, 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 of real people, of everyday people uh, talking about what it means to believe, to have faith, to lose faith, and to like so many of us live in the country in between. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, 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 and we really are in our democracy, in this republic, we really are finding deeper and deeper 
crevices in which people fall between faith and faithlessness. And what did you find when you were talking to people like uh, Cornel West and uh, this, um, I, I decided uh, when I read um, the one essay, Sweet Fuck All Colorado, <laughs> well, that's I decided that I wanted we can, we can to go live the there. Of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. We, we can we can speak straight. Um, uh, well, Cornell Cornell has an essay called "Begin with the Dead," and how that began was my editor at Rolling Stone magazine, for which I, I I write, said, "I'd like you, you know, would you be interested in writing about Cornell?" And my first response was, "No way," partly because I kind of have a rule in general, not always, but in general, against writing about famous people. Um, mm-hmm. You know their story has been told, and I thought I knew Cornell's story. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we you know we can see him every week, practically in the Tabitha Smiley show or other TV shows. You know, he's you know he's got a very visible media presence. And I said, so why don't you you know why don't you spend some time with his book? So I started with the 1982 book, his first book called Prophesied Deliverance. Uh, and I like a lot of his work, but that one is my favorite. Uh, it, it's a flawed work, but it's beautiful work about. Uh, his sense of a, a radical politics leaning on the church. And I happen not to be, uh, I come from a different tradition. I'm not, I'm not a Christian person, but I love, I love learning about Christianity, and I loved learning about it from Cornell. And it opened me up to this conversation. So, you, you know, you talk about how long it took. I interviewed Cornell over a period of about a year, going down to Princeton. <laughs> I can believe it multiple times and you really have to do that i think with a famous person because you know i would go down and the first conversations they'd be great conversations but they'd be cornell doing his routine and every famous that's nothing against him every famous person has one and we didn't actually break through until it was a couple things uh he had for years been deep friends with the editors of an obscure little radical magazine called Monthly Review. And anyone who ever says Cornell is just an opportunist and in it for his own has to understand how much time Cornell has put into a magazine called Monthly Review, which, you know, uh, your high status of working with Monthly Review and two bucks will get you on the subway. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's an obscure thing, but it's an important thing. In fact, my wife had worked on it, too, and so that was a connection we had. Mm-hmm. But even a deeper connection was a um, piece I had written about a 1920s banjo player named Doc Boggs. It became the end of this book. It's called yeah, Born, Comma, Again. Yeah, and I yeah. published it in an obscure southern magazine called Oxford American. Cornell reads everything. Man reads three, sleeps three hours a night and reads the rest of the time. One day I'm down there in Princeton to see him. He says, Brother Jeff, Brother Jeff, we must talk about Doc Boggs, most essential. And he knew all about this forgotten yeah. banjo player because yeah. he reads everything. And he understood why I cared about him as more than just a banjo player, but as an artist saying something deep and profound about yeah. democracy. So that, so that, that, that drew me in, and that's sort of the anchor of the piece. You know, I had, had a hard time deciding whether should I should begin the book with Cornell or with this other essay you mentioned, Sweet Fuck All Colorado. Um, and I, for the listeners out there, I should say I'm not a person given to vulgarity. That is a name of a bar in Colorado. They call themselves Sweet Fuck All Colorado. Sweet Fuck All. Um, I'm not given to vulgarity, but I'm sure I am tonight. Uh, and it's their way of expressing a kind of um, a certain amount of uh, giving in, giving up, acquiescence, mm-hmm. quitting, dropping out, moving up into the hills, the mountains. Um, and I encountered this place on my way to visit this old girlfriend who had had a, a um, had become a 
rising star of the Republican Party, and I wanted to know how but that happened. I didn't get the part about the gun. Why would she leave you the gun when she left you and went to Colorado? <laughs> oh, oh no, she had given. This is this is to give you a sense of who this, she, this person. Um, I mean, I begin this um, uh, this essay, uh, if I may, just sort of the first line, and I think sure. it sort of says a lot about not just her, but also about um, why I care. This is not just about her going to find an old lefty friend who's become a right winger, an old girlfriend, or going back to a place I love, but about the way in which Colorado once symbolized for me uh, so much. It was my mountain religion. When I was 18, I fell hard for the state of Colorado as embodied by a woman with long honey blonde hair and speckled green eyes who drank wine from a coffee mug and whiskey from the bottle. Her name was Molly Not Chilson. That's how she said it when she'd been drinking. Molly Not Chilson, all three names. The latter two, the marks of good family for those who knew Colorado, which I did not. And I was so impressed with her and that world that she came from. I'm from upstate New York, little little factory town called Scotia, G factory town. And, um, you know, part of the story is that <laughs> Valentine's Day gift she gave me back, you know, now we're talking almost 20 years ago in college. She gave me a rifle for Valentine's Day. Uh, and I've never had a gun. I'm not from that world, and and but she was, and uh, um, she ended. You know, after college, as many of these relationships do, you break up, you go your separate ways. Um, but we remained friends, and um, uh, over time, uh, she and her husband, a wonderful man who, who, named John Curley, who I'm also proud to call friend. This is not a story about like going to see your old flame, that kind of thing. You know, yeah, as I say yeah. in the story, you know, I went, uh, my wife and I went to her wedding, and she came east to our wedding, you know, that that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But they have, man- she and her husband, wonderful man, have managed to build a small arsenal <laughs> that began with a Glock and uh, roamed through the whole range of armaments up to an AK-47 clone. Um, so they're really armed and living a very different life, and that's what the story is about. It's a, it's a story that mm-hmm. I think hopefully people can relate to anyone who, you know, from your youth, someone you're absolutely close to, and they go in a radically different direction. And yeah. I got the chance you to know, go and explore that. One of the things that you do in this book is that you challenge your own doubts and beliefs. And and as I was reading, especially the essay that you do on a man by the name of Brad Will. Oh, yeah. who's an American anarchist. Yeah. And and that must have been very painful uh, for you well, Brad to Will, have to delve into that kind of story. Well, Bradwell, it's a, it is, it's a very sad story, and, and I, I, it's no spoiler. I give it away right at the beginning. Um, an essay called Quebrado, Spanish for broken. It's the, he would make fun of his own kind of lame Spanish when he was in Mexico, and that's where he died in 2006, and uh, he had gone, he's an anarchist, he's a, you know, radical leftist, uh, kind of like those people, if you're out there and you know about, you know, this Occupy Wall Street thing that's going on right now, Brad was sort of, if he was alive, he'd be down there right now, um, and uh, he'd, be, he'd been kind of a screw-up most of his life, but he finally found his groove, he'd found his pace and become a journalist and he went down to Oaxaca, Mexico in 2006 when a strike of 70,000 school teachers broadened into a massive revolt against Mexico's 
deeply corrupt regime. Uh, and Brad was going to cover it, and that's what he was doing with a video camera, a uh, video camera covering these conflicts with the police and the protesters. Uh, courageous and foolhardy, they would be, you know, for weapons, they had, well, they called them bazookas. What they were were they were pipes through which they would shoot bottle rockets, you know, little Fourth of July bottle rockets. Um, uh-huh. the, police had, the police had AR-15s, um, which was not an even match. But Brad was covering it. He was trying to be a good journalist. He was hanging back from right exactly to the front lines. But at a moment of his video, uh, and the, you can see it online if you, if you, if you Google Brad Will, and if you are, I suppose, strong-hearted. Much of the footage before it is quite beautiful as he as he as he documents revolution. But then suddenly, bang, he falls down. And if you slow that video down slow enough, as as his friends and comrades have trying to bring justice to him, you can actually see the puff of smoke as the bullet leaves the policeman's gun. The bullet wow. traveling toward Brad, and it hits him, boom, in the heart. He falls down and. To tell that story, to tell the story of a dead man, I did have to dig deep into that anarchist subculture, which, um, which I was fascinated with. I, I really, in fact, there's two stories about anarchists in this book, and I'm interested in that kind of uh, dissent, which, on the one hand, is courageous as, as Brad was, uh, and compassionate, and on the other hand, can sometimes seem foolhardy and naive. Um, but I think those two things. Or like a, 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 a range of qualities, they often travel together. But what Sweet Heaven does do, Jeff, and I really thank you for this. It really balances out, pushes away, and helps people resolve the issue of the difference between religion and faith. Yeah. And it helps people. Really, it helped me and thank you very much, to really examine what informs my own faith. Yeah. The subtitle of the book is Faith, Faithlessness, and the Country in Between. The title is Sweet Heaven When I Die. And it's funny, having written these two books, The Family and Sea Street on Fundamentalist Authoritarian Religion, I'm discovering that some people, um, some of my fans from those other books, oh, I don't want to look at this you new know, one. It sounds like Charlotte's gone and gotten all... He's gotten religion. He's gotten yeah. gotten weepy. Yeah. See Heaven When I Die is actually uh, from an old blues song by that that banjo player Doc Ball. Yeah. Um, and but the, the faith, faithlessness in the country in between that's really where it. Gets, I use those terms neutrally. Sometimes faith. Some people use faith as a purely positive word, and I respect the faith of those with whom I deeply disagree. I don't say it's not real faith. Um, uh, in the same way that faithlessness is a kind of despair, and there's people who I admire. Um, uh, you take someone like Cornell West, and I think there's ways in which he embodies both faith and faithlessness. I don't mean yes. that negatively. I mean he he. That's why I call it "Begin with the Dead." He he is interested in exploring that space of despair. But religion, religion, that term that you brought up, that's um. I mean, I define it very broadly, but I, I want to say, look, let's think, when we talk about faith and faithlessness in terms of the country that we all inhabit together, we're not just talking about church people. Uh, mm-hmm. We're talking about Brad Will, this anarchist. We're talking about right. one story in there um, about um, all the little folks who are trying to resist the clear channel media empire, um, mm-hmm. the biggest, mm-hmm. biggest radio media monopoly out out there. 
Um, those people are embodying faith, even those who are within the Queer Channel Empire who are trying to cling to the music that they love that got them into that business in the first place. That's all mm-hmm. That's all faith in my book. It mm-hmm. may not be religion, mm-hmm. but it's faith. You know, um, it, it's really interesting because one of the things that – uh, there were a number of questions that that came up with me uh in in reading the book um and that is how faith plays into uh, a people's history since we are all um the melting pot we're in a melting pot democracy that's not working so well right now um i i one of the things that i wanted to ask you is personally, what did you discover about how important and how faith informs your life? These were some high-powered thinkers that you were talking yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, and and they shaped me a lot, you know. I mean, from Hava Rosenfarb, the, the last great Yiddish writer. She was the last yes. one on earth, and she yes. died just before this book went to press. No. Um, uh, uh, so we have her books, but we don't have her anymore. Uh, and. Yeah. Cornell West, certainly a powerhouse thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, Brad Will, I don't know if he's a powerhouse thinker, but uh, he definitely put a challenge to your view of the world. Um, all and that char- means that he was thinking. He was. I mean, he's some people don't think thinking, of yeah. these issues. Yes. And, and that's everyone and in the book in embodies what I call political imagination. And I use the term political more broadly than just, you know, who's going to get elected, that kind of thing. But imagination mm-hmm. about how we're going to live together. What are we going to do? Mm-hmm. How are we going to get along? It's going to, not going to be easy. We know we can't we can't fall back on platitudes. We're going to have to ask tough questions. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I think from both Cornell and from Doc Boggs, that banjo player. That's really I really learned. I think um, this was a new or thing for me was to learn the power and the value of despair. Now, despair is this word we think of as wholly negative. But, yeah, but yeah. these these this this artist Doc Boggs and this thinker Cornell showed me the value of despair. Uh, the artist, in the sense that so much of his great music, which sustains me, comes out of that. The thinker Cornell West, in the sense that he's saying, "Look, despair is a kind of uh, a point." You know, when we look at um, uh, uh, if we look at the American history on race, mm-hmm. you know we are deluding ourselves if if, if we say that, a ra- that anything but a rational response would be despair. Uh, this country has has uh, again and again and again failed mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. But let me tell this- the audience that they must read this book because I look at the spectrum the ideological spectrum uh, uh, that that spans in the people that you write about and have interviewed for this book, like Brian Dilworth, yeah. who was the builder of Clear Channel Communications. Uh, and, he, he, in, in Philadelphia. I don't want to blame Dilworth for that whole media monopoly. But, yeah, yeah, he, he, was, he was their man on the ground in Philly. Yeah, yeah. And then um, – Ron Lush. Yeah. That's a scary uh, guy. That's a scary man. Uh, yeah, he is scary. Yeah. And 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 what was 
what was just so interesting is that you were looking at people who you think have not a sense of prophecy for their lives, in their lives. And you were looking at people like Cornel West that, you know, he has thought about, done so many things, uh, has developed a whole body of philosophy on his own. And by the way, I knew him, we were students together here in Boston. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, as a matter of fact, my I have to tell you the story about so you, you, you basically uh, know Nell. everybody in this book, I think. <laughs> okay. no, That's why I told you I knew two people. Yes. Um, I was a freshman coming out of um, a really bad situation in having spent three years as the only black student in a high school of 900 kids in a very affluent community. So I was really grabbling with I, – I had kind of been turned off my axis. I felt myself privileged until I really met the evil face of privilege. <laughs> and so when I came to Boston to school, um, Cornell West was a senior at Harvard. And – I got invited to this party, and he has this party at the beginning of – this was part of his legacy. And I met him like the first week I was here. And one of the – I was in a study group. Uh, um, there was a large Boston study group of black students. And I had to come in all the way from Wellesley um, to be in this study group. But Wellesley had a shuttle to the Harvard campus back and forth. And – and and I was mesmerized by him. He was the first weird black man I ever met. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 now I look at him and when I have occasion to talk to him and I did when, when he was in Boston and now he's um wherever he is now, he's in Princeton, Princeton but he's now, everywhere yeah. else. He's everywhere, right. But uh one of the things that I think about and I have met him been with him in some of my professional work, and I have said, but you can't reinvent God because he really is a, a person that approaches most things with the idea that it needs reforming, transforming, or reinvention. Um, so when you talk to these people, one of the things that I was thinking is that you have – gotten to the you have gotten to a place where you possibly have broken the continuum of their faith because they had to rethink while talking to you so did you get that sense that's uh, yeah I, I well one thank you that's very kind of you to say that and i think um uh in the kind of stories that that, that i love telling are um the stories where you get to talk to a person for a long time, and it's not—I'm not grilling them. I'm not Mike Wallace. I don't go in with a, you know, those kinds of yeah, questions. Yeah. I want to know who the person is, and I want to know uh, uh, beyond the stick. And sometimes you find that, you know, with Brad Will, the anarchist journalist, who, um, uh, you know, beyond the sort of the the public image of the, uh, you know, the the hardened revolutionary, what I found was this guy who was very devoted to his family. And I thought that was just as important. Um, with Cornell, um, I think what I found um, was, in some ways, and, and I've said this to him, so this is not sort of you know speaking out of school or telling tales. Mm-hmm. But I, I, 
a real tragic sense. Here was this guy who, uh, in some way, you know, always, you know, the smartest man in the room, brilliant, charismatic, warm. But uh, a burden. Um, sorry? I always well, thought a, that, a that burden, was a yeah, burden. Yeah, but also, I mean, a guy who was sort of back in his early days um, was built for and seen by many around him as, you know, the leader of some kind of revolution. When Ronald Reagan got elected in 1980, I think a lot of people thought, well, this is it. America's finally gone too far to the right, and um, people are going to wake up. And I know that's how Cornell felt, and it didn't happen. And uh, he's, as he put it, he lived in an ice age since. And I, and I see that as a very tragic a, a tragic sense, tragic sensibility um, that shapes him, and I think that's um, something you don't normally get in the stories about Cornell, or you might not get in the public rec- representation. And it, it, you know, that's the kind of sensibility that connects him to someone like the Yiddish writer Hopper Rosenfarb, whose tragic sensibility as a Holocaust survivor is, you know, immediate mm-hmm. and evident and right there on the surface. But. Um, well, yeah, I think I, that, I, I think that's, of, that's the kind of thing that you those. want to do as a reporter is 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 to get to that place where yeah. it's not like you're doing a gotcha kind of thing, but maybe you're being changed by the story and the person that you're writing about is being changed just by answering the questions that you're asking. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things is that you 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 chose some very brilliant people. And, and and genius at some point is a heavy burden, and you grieve it a lot. I mean, that's how I have always approached my relationship with Dr. West, that he knows too much. Mm. He understands too much. And sometimes that confuses his forwardness, his 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 direction, but at the same time, you're you're informing me in this book, sweet heaven when I die, that that's why it's important to have this place between faith and faithfulness, and it's in a country, and it's it and and it's in this country called. For us, it's in this country called America, and the faith can also inform that. I mean, I look at a guy like Dick Gregory. I look at, um, in in our community, um, Dick Gregory and the former mayor, Marion Barry, Mm -hmm. and I look at Jesse Jackson Sr., Mm -hmm. and I look at Reverend Fontroy, and I look at Reverend Fontroy's brother, who know, who's pretty obscure, but most most people who worked heavily in the civil rights movement and the black power movement know him very well, and that's Ray Fontroy down in Miami. And I look at these people, um, um, and I say that something, as Ju- Dr. Julia Hare would say, something had to steal them and it and and i think as i read your book that it had to be constantly struggling and finding themselves in the faith in which it in in a body of faith which suits their perception of themselves yeah i think that you you said that so brilliantly and i think it it's important that constantly struggling that you know 
there's a there's an essay in the book called The Rapture, and I decided I wanted to go and yes. investigate the, the you know New Age kind of New religion. New Age spirituality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's kind of a goofy story. It's there, you know. There's some giggles in it. There's this woman who is uh, you know sort of a New Age priestess, and she believes that she can channel Jesus, and she does. So she channels Jesus, and then Jesus and her persona, Jesus gives me this sort of analysis of my personality. And the interesting thing is she gets it just right. She says, look, you're not a, I understand that you don't believe me. Um, She says, uh, um, but you're not a seeker. Um, You are a doubter. And that doubt, she says, doubt is not just the rejection of belief. Doubt is in between. Doubt is that struggle. She says, doubt is your calling. Doubt is your revelation. And And I very much appreciated that. And I think I gravitate toward uh, individuals to write about for whom that is the case as well, that the struggle is forged. That. I think about this. Uh, I spent the last couple of months, I'm very immersed right now, in doing a, a Rolling Stone profile on uh, Harry Belafonte, the great uh, entertainer, who many people don't also realize. Uh, I mean, I think everyone knows that he was always there in civil rights. They don't quite understand what an incredibly central role he played, and not in, just oh, in that yeah. struggle, but in many yeah. struggles. Um, yeah, I I really encourage people on this program to watch the HBO documentary. Right. I come from it's, it's coming a up. race that's, that's, family. That's, that's what prompted the story. Yeah. Oh really? I I come from a race family, and the people that were involved, people don't realize that people that were involved in putting together the blueprint for the civil rights movement were all over this country. And they were connected by uh, the Pittsburgh Courier, Mm -hmm. Ebony Magazine, Jet Magazine, Crisis Magazine. But but that's the interesting thing. Most people know all those names except for the Pittsburgh Courier. The Pittsburgh Courier Uh deserves a book of its own. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you I know, learned I mean, how to read from the Pittsburgh Courier. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, there you go. You, then maybe you're the one to write the book. <laughs> the Pittsburgh Courier and Muhammad Speaks. Uh, not that we were um, m- members of the Nation of Islam, Lost and Found. Um, it was just that black families across the country who were ra- what we called race families had to have information and and also honored and and valued uh information from uh around the country. So, you know, like Harry Belafonte. Harry Belafonte when I was a kid uh stayed at our house. Not because he was good friends with my parents, but because we knew somebody in New York that knew somebody in California and when he came to um Palm Beach to entertain it was Jim Crow he couldn't go to a hotel so he had to go to somebody's house and and stay and um they always we had a nice house <laughs> so um and and that's how the what i call the black community kept uh ties uh, across the country, too, in terms of laying the landscape for when a Dr. Martin Luther King and a Malcolm X and a Marcus Garvey came along. Jeff, we're going to take a break. Thank you for being with us here tonight. Uh, Jeff, when we come back, I'd like to open up our lines. 
Our number is one three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. We're talking with Jeff Charlotte. He is the author of a new book, Sweet Heaven, When I Die, Faith, Faithlessness, and the Country in Between. And if you have questions for him, if you have not read the book, you should read this book. It is recommended. It will go on our recommended bookshelf. This is Our Common Ground. Trying to make it real compared to what... We looked, at, looked into the eyes of evil, pure evil, and said to ourselves, what is this country coming to? What have these bigoted rape, and I'll repeat it, bigoted rape. If anybody wants to challenge me on that, have that, have that. Common sense, pull no punches. It's the Alpha Show, Saturday, TruthWorks Network, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Bring your own locks. And your A-game. The Alpha Show, TruthWorks Network, Truth is spoken until it's done. people here know that. America is America today that many people can bear because of the civil rights movement. Not the Navy or the Marines or the Supreme Court. Huh? We didn't ask for an appeal. We took it. Trying to make it real compared to what... This is our common ground, celebrating 20 years broadcasting bold and black. I'm Janice Grant. We're so glad to have you with us tonight at our common ground with our guest, the author Jeff Charlotte and Jim Girock of Leap. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. 
the wrath of God. Preachers filling us with pride. They all trying to teach us what they think is right. They really got to be some kind of nut. I can't use it. I'm trying to make it real compared to what. And we thank you for being with us. And we thank Jeff Charlotte, the author of Sweet Heaven, When I Die. Faith, Faithlessness, and the Country in Between, where he talks to healers and spiritualists and Cornell West uh, and those who have an insight into their personal faith system of believing that there is something that brings us safely across. His essays together form a very compelling picture of a skeptic in search of truth and challenge. This book challenges us to imagine an American of doubters and believers that come together. Jeff, thank you so much again for this book and for being with us. For those of you who are just joining us, Jeff Charlotte is the author of The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for more than 20 weeks, and C Street, The Fundamentalist Threat to American Democracy, for which he received the Molly Ivins National Journalism Prize, and he is co-author of Killing the Buddha, A Heretic's Bible. This is Jeff's return to us. You know, Jeff, uh, C Street had just come out when you were with us the last time. And it really, I think I think it changed the way so many people view the American body politic. And it, it helps in this new matrix that we're in. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm glad. I, you know, that was a sort of the that was a work that I was doing for a long time with uh, uh, trying to get people to pay attention to the ways in which the right really works. And and I had stumbled onto this myself. Um, I think I had had kind of I'd gone along with it. The Washington Post once described uh, fundamentalist Christians as mostly uh, poor. Uh, rural, ignorant, and easily led. Um, I think that was about the, the language they used. And um, mm-hmm. uh, the truth is, they are none of these things. Um, you know, this is not a, an impoverished movement. Um, they get degrees from elite colleges. Um, they may be ignorant on, I think, moral truths, but um, they're not stupid. And I think mm-hmm. uh, those of us on the progressive side of things have often made that mistake of uh, uh, assuming that those we disagree with are, are, are stupid or foolish and so on. And in those two books, I'm saying, look, here, let's, let's go at the history of this movement and the things that it has accomplished, the ways in which it goes back to the 1940s and it, uh, the Taft-Hartley uh, legislation, one of the most important laws in American history. If you want to know why we don't have universal health care, you go back to 1947 and Taft-Hartley which is the law that gutted the organized labor movement. We'd, we're alone amongst developed nations in the world not having a powerful organized labor movement, and that's why. And, you know, mm-hmm. this was a movement that was at the heart of all these fights then and now. And I tried to bring that to uh, to public attention and, you know, had had some success doing so. Um, but 
I would go out and I would do book tour on that book on C Street and family, and people would come up to me and they would say, "Oh, thank you so much for this book. I, I, I'm so glad you wrote this book. It depressed me so much, or it ruined my week." <laughs> and I was like, "Huh." So, "Sweet Heaven When I Die" is my antidote. If those, yeah. if you liked reading those books but they depressed you, try "Sweet Heaven When I Die" because that's that's what I did. That's that's how I kept. Well, saying. you know, it's interesting that you you bring up that point because. Uh, I was reading Sweet Heaven uh, the week before and during the week of the Troy Davis yeah. execution. Yeah. And I was bitterly resenting that the crazies in this country have outmaneuvered people of goodwill. Mm-hmm. And the book helped me kind of keep it together, kind of bring it to the center rather than just simply um, welcoming the kind of grief and sadness mm-hmm. that I felt. So um, that's another thank you for this book. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we're going to go to our phones. You're listening to Our Common Ground, and we're talking with the author of Sweet Heaven When I Die, Jeff Charlotte. 908, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Do you have a question or a comment for Jeff Charlotte or me? Um, uh, uh, Janice, it's Loga Odom. Oh, Michelle. Okay. You want to just hold on. I I know you've got a question. Uh, Yeah, I can hold on. Come on. You're the the daughter of an AME minister. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> and the queen of the AME church. I <laughs> <laughs> You want to come back to me? Uh why why you 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 don't you well, you don't want to make a comment right now? Well, no, I tuned in late, so really I missed most of the program, but I I guess I would I would ask I I've been involved in this long Facebook debate uh, the last couple of days. Uh, someone posed the question or or made the suggestion that the black community should adopt a policy of electoral boycotting uh, to show our moral uh, uh, disagreement with uh, uh, the way this country is killing people around the world. Um I argued that electoral boycotting is the equivalent of political suicide. And um, so so my question, I, I did hear you guys saying something about, uh, I heard you, Janice, saying something about how uh, the right has outmaneuvered people of goodwill. And, you know, and I'd like to talk more about, you know, what are the strategies? What mm-hmm. are the strategies mm-hmm. okay. that are most effective at getting what you want out of a political system? Okay, let's see if we can get a response from Jeff. But one, I will tell you that I'm on my second reading of this book. And one of the things that I have underscored uh, is around my friend Dr. Cornell West and the essay. Uh, around him um, and 
and he and I have similar backgrounds. I mean, I mentioned to someone today or yesterday or sometime that I was a child who learned. I never thought, and when I was uh, eight years old, I, I, it didn't occur to me that children could die. Mm-hmm. But it was the bombing of a Birmingham church where four, four girls who looked like me, was the same age as me, and went to Sunday school every Sunday morning like me, and they were killed in church. And I learned the lesson of both children dying and hatred in this country. Mm-hmm. So Cornell West and I have kind of like the same backgrounds. We grew up understanding what lynching was. We grew up understanding uh, that you stepped off the sidewalk downtown when a white person, simply not to have a hassle, or and you didn't buy clothes. You couldn't try on clothes in, 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 in stores downtown, so you simply waited until you went to New York in the summer. I mean, those were the lessons of that time. And one of the things I got out of Jeff's essay, and I want Jeff to comment on this, is that I, along with my generation, continue to have faith in American democracy because we believe somehow that it remains. Uh, a thing, a, a belief that will carry us safely across. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, you know, I, I think to me, I, you know, on the one hand, I'm tempted to say, why are you limiting that that boycott to the black community? I think, I think we could. On the one hand, I'm tempted to say, why don't everyone just boycott this thing? Because we're all. So well, because we don't it. want so to bad. wake up one morning and say President Rick Perry. That's <laughs> oh, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I think that's that's almost a foregone conclusion at this point. But um, uh, but you know, even then, I mean, all the stories in this book are, you know, I, I say that it, there's a sort of academic jargon, so sites of resistance, but they're all sites of resistance, and I think um, that that so I'm sort of drawn to recognizing the different ways people are going to resist things as they are. And and I and I will lean on Cornell again and, and his definition of human dignity. Human dignity is the ability to contradict what is. To me that's fascinating. That the first statement of political, of spiritual imagination is not an affirmation, it's a negation. It says no. That the world as it is comes to us broken and corrupt, and we say no, and we try to imagine something better. So there are those for whom that's going to take the form of an electoral boycott, and I respect them, and there are those uh, for whom that's going to take the form of throwing themselves into electoral politics, and that is also a way of saying no to things as they are and saying I'm going to change this. Uh, you know, uh, Janice, you spoke of sort of the, the faith in democracy. I, I completely agree with you. Um, the one thing I would say, and this this is from the uh, the final essay in the book, "Born, Comma Again," the commas where all the action is in that in that title, um, is at the end. I'm sort of saying uh, um, that we are trying, you know, we're trying to be human. We fail. We accept that. We try again. 
Uh, and I said, this is not a redemption story. Born again, Christ, no. We are Christ still knows. waiting We're to still be born. still waiting to be born. Not, wait. not yes, waiting. Democracy, you know, Hoping. I mean, democracy is a wonderful idea. I, I, I can't wait. It's going to be awesome when we get it. But we're not there yet. And, well, uh, one of the things that we, we embrace, we embrace this man um, um, uh, uh, who is now President President Barack Obama, when he when he came on the scene because – he said the word hope mm-hmm. and change. Mm-hmm. And we understand that culturally, we understand that historically, but better than that, we understood and embraced the spirit of that. We embrace the spirit and of that. And that's about our faith. That that's about our faith and, and, and you know, but that's that's also about our doubt. That's gotta be, you know, this is why, you know, the the catchphrase of this book might be doubt is your revelation, doubt is your calling. Um uh, and I do think that, you know, um you know, you look at the Obama administration and, and it is so meaningful on some levels and on other levels, uh we have an administration that is expanding war against people all around the globe, has stepped mm-hmm. up those wars, has mm-hmm. not Mm-hmm. Scale those wars back. That's a meaningful thing. We yeah. have an administration, you know, with guys like Tim Geithner, Larry Summers, now gone but replaced by an equally thuggish character. Um, uh, these 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 economic figures, and that's where I think, you know, to me, this is not a book about you know politics, what you should do, what you should vote for, anything like that. It is a book. I hope this we have one day. It is a hope, a book. I hope about political imagination, um, about saying that, you know. Whether one has lost faith in Obama or maintains that faith, but that shouldn't be where your faith stops. Your imagination needs to go beyond beyond that. Yes, that that, yes. that political figure. We we you know this is we're the we're the ones who imagine our democracy. We don't lean on on politicians and wait for them to do it for us. Right, uh, Michelle. The the only thing I can say in 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 your debate is that. We as a people have always had to work with what we have. Right. And one of the the strongest, one of the the, the steel in our back is to look back and say that we not only had faith in what we could accomplish, but we had faith in the promise we made to each other. And I've I've been thinking about that a lot, and I've been thinking about how white supremacy and how the broken political promises and the that evil has outmaneuvered um, goodwill in this country. And I only can say that we have to also work on our broken faith. We have to look at. Where faith is broken, and I'm I, and and I'm getting all of this from this book. <laughs> Jeff Charlotte has has had me on a on a roll for about two weeks. <laughs> oh, thank you, Jane. So, uh, you know that is one of the things, and you know, uh, for instance, um, <clears throat> I I have a friend who's a UU minister, and and. And I suggested to her that she read this book, and she's doing a talk. You know, they don't call it sermons. A talk on Monday night 
uh, about this book, Jeff, and I was going to tell you about that. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah, and it's at the First Church of um, Roxbury here in, in Boston. So, you know, we just have to keep working at it. And we know that faith has been a healer for us, faith in each other, faith in that we can make change. And who has made, as one of the reasons I played those comments from Dick Gregory, and you didn't get that uh, at the beginning of this program, is because who has been the moral barometer and the greatest change maker in this country? It's us. Yes. It's us and our history and our hope and faith. And, and, and that's how I see it. So if people want to go ahead and have electoral boycotts, have at it. But, but I do not. I cannot. You know, I have a um, a place in Madagascar, and I will not stay here under a president called Rick Perry. Won't do it. Wait, wait, wait. Well, then we Target, better figure yes. out whether we want to boycott or we want to we want to elect or we want to be down on Wall Street with those folks occupying exactly. Wall Street or, or protest in our own community because because it 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 could be coming because they are organizing and uh, uh, we can't be lazy because that man yep. Rick Perry I've met him twice and I think I underestimated him I thought he was a stupid man and I was wrong that guy is smart. No. No. And um, we need to be ready, but not yep. not in fear and bitterness, but you know, yep. as you're saying, and, and yep. kind of hope and imagination. But but you're 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 right, Jeff. And one of the things that we have to understand is that I've been saying to people, especially all my colleagues, uh, all of us have. You know, I spent the first uh, 25 years of my career as a corporate executive. We all know one thing about those men in the boardroom that they operate from fear. Mhm. Yeah. That yeah. they're all they that they're all not very smart. They've just been in the right place at the right time and willing to make the right uh compromises with the right people. So we have to use that to be able to maneuver and outmaneuver them. Yeah. And yeah. that is why I really support what's going on. Occupy Wall Street, uh, Occupy San Francisco, Occupy Boston, which took on a huge form on, on Wednesday. Um, there were there were like 62 people who were arrested just uh, this morning. So those are the things that we have to do. And where faith comes in is that, yes, we can. Oh, God, did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can is about we. Ah, he didn't you know, say, that, yes, I nice. can. He said, yes, we can. Yeah, yeah. And if we have to roll over on him to uh-huh. do what we must do, that's what we must do, and that's what we've always done. Mm-hmm. Thank yeah. you so much, Michelle, for your call. Oh. All right. Thank you, Do you Michelle. need me to put you on hold, Michelle? No, no, I'm done. Okay. Thanks. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you, Janice. I should probably better get going because I uh, hear. We've got uh, one more call, Jeff. Can you okay. take one more call? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Seven seven three. You're on the air. I respect you. Thank you uh, for your call to talk with Jeff Charlotte. 
Good evening, Jennifer, and good evening, Mr. Charlie. Um, in, in listening to the program, I've listened to one side has faith, goodwill, and the other side has nefarious, insidious intent, evil. Because it seems to me that they plot and plan and scheme, and they use their money to bring it all to fruition. And on our side, we seem to continue with this faith and this, uh, I want to say, soft approach, rather than looking at it as an all-out war that we should be waging, not a... uh, not a campaign of, come on, you all really aren't that evil. You all really aren't that bad. It seems to me that we operate from a position of uh, benefit of the doubt. We're going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they can't be, that anybody can't be that evil. And that's my problem with it. Your problem with what, Alpha? With the way we approach, with the way we engage with the other side, because oh, they see. have they have evil intent. So you said, yeah, no, I, I'm I'm sympathetic to this, and I and, and I've got the hard evidence to back it up. Uh, from my book, The Family in the Sea Street, I came across. I, I spent some time in the archives of a man named Chuck Colson, and older listeners may may remember Chuck Colson as the the Nixon henchman who went to prison, a felon. Uh, for organizing the break-ins. Uh, he was Nixon's hatchet man, a real tough character. And then he was supposedly born again in prison and came out and became head of something called Prison Fellowship, uh, which is a huge, huge organization now. Now, I've interviewed Chuck, and uh, Chuck says, what does he see Prison Fellowship as about? It's about taking the potentially the most radical class of Americans, the, the, the millions and millions of prisoners, and defusing any sense of politics in them. And then the thing that really got me was a letter that I found in his archives, and he says, I love having dialogue with liberals. I stay in the same place, and they come to me. And, you know, that's true. That's true that there's yeah. a sense in which uh, there's, a, there's a disconnect there in which liberals sort of feel that um, – uh, that the thing to do is to, you know, compromise a little here, compromise there. Those are liberal values. Conservative values are no compromise. So who's going to win that debate every time? The exactly. one who doesn't compromise or the one who wants to compromise? The conservatives are going to win it. So I, I, I'm completely sympathetic with you in that regard, and that's actually there's a story in this book that Janice mentioned about a name Ron Luce in a movement called Battle Cry, this is the most militant fundamentalist youth movement in America. It's huge. We're talking tens and tens of thousands of children. This guy, um, this guy does not uh, does not soften his words. He told me he would say all of us in this conversation, as he puts it, we are terrorists. And as he said, you are no different than Al Qaeda. There's no difference between you and Al Qaeda. It's us against you. Now, that said, I I don't want the you know the benefit of the doubt for this guy. This guy is a question. This guy forces us to think of the old labor song, which side are you on? I'm not on his side. But I do begin the the book with an essay uh, um, about an old friend who, you know, I mean, this is, this is an old girlfriend. Our first date was when I bailed her out of jail 
she was protesting the first Gulf War, and our second date uh, was when she bailed me out of jail uh, protesting uh, the <laughs> Gulf War. So, you know, but then over the years, she became a right winger, or a special kind of right winger, became a DA in Colorado. And um, I wanted to understand that she was still motivated by a sense of justice. She wants to she wants to bring justice out where she is in rural Colorado. The crime is primarily abuse of children. And uh that's that's what she fights and so on. So I don't have to give her the benefit of the doubt and say we're on the same side. But I do know that she's human and I know that she's out there and she's yeah. human and that she's a person I can talk to even if I ultimately cannot talk to someone like Ron Luce. So we find the folks we can talk to, we talk to them, uh, and we fight like hell uh, <laughs> with the folks who have made it clear that they're not interested in talking. Well, Jeff, we, we certainly thank you for, for being with us. Alpha, um, you know, the thing is that faith is a very personal thing. It's so personal that you have to form your own. And that faith can inform who you are as an activist, who you are as a talk show host, who you are as a as a as a, a person in your community and how you engage in the civic affairs of your community. And that's why it's important. And I'm going to put you on hold, Alpha, because I want to talk to you. Okay. Thank, Jeff, you Alpo, Charlie, thank you, Alpha. Thank you, Janice, so much for having me so on the show. Thank you so very much, it's and good an luck with this book. And we will continue to watch how it does and inform from it in places where we need to bring the issue. And you know, I, I already, I, I do want to tell you, I have an idea for another book for you. All right. Thank you. <laughs> I'm getting something out of this show. <laughs> I I really do. And that is one of the things that the story has not been told, and you do this so beautifully, is the story of people like Ruby Sales and the the women and men who gave up. Who's, who, they gave up their family because their family says, oh, no, you're not going – to Alabama and Mississippi and Tennessee and Arkansas talking about no black power. (laughs) Um, And they came. They heard the call, and they came. And we don't hear about those people enough. You are are absolutely right. That is a good story. Okay, I'm going to make a deal with you. I'm going to write that one. You've got to write the Pittsburgh Courier book. Okay, Jeff Charlotte, thank you so very much, and you, uh, I look forward to um, your your new book that you're working on is what's the name of it? the Hammer? It's called the the, the Hammer Song, and it's about sort of uh, following uh, if I had a hammer from his first performance in 1949 at a Paul Robeson concert, where a crowd of 5,000 people tried to kill Paul Robeson. Uh, into the present day, uh-huh. where it's just an in, you know it's, it's kind of a kid song, but it's the, the Harry Belafonte material is going to feed into it. It's all about this kind of the way, the way a group of radical musicians kept the faith uh, over wow. fifty years. So hopefully, well, hopefully we'll, it'll work out. We'll see. We'll we'll certainly uh, be talking with you about that one. Great, thank you I so have much, Dan. Stories too. All thank right, you, all right. I'm going to call Thank you. Take care. Good night. 
And that was Jeff Charlotte, and we suggest that you buy the book, you read the book, you study the book, Sweet Heaven When I Die, Faith, Faithlessness, and the Country in Between. He is the author of um, so many wonderful, I mean, he does a terrific job in simply pulling it together. And I know that I just, uh, by mistake, and I apologize, um, hung up on everybody, and I didn't mean to do that. Please call back. Our number is 347-838-9852. I don't have Kevin back here in this kitchen trying to put this show together. Coming up uh, here at Our Common Ground, James Girock. He's a former Cook County, Illinois State uh, Prosecutor, and he is a member of the Board of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Tomorrow night, um, PBS will be premiering Ken Burns' documentary on prohibition, and we're going to be talking with James Garak, who is a practicing attorney and who has experienced the effect of the war on drugs from both sides of the legal system, and we hope that you will stay with us. This is Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and on the other side, I'll be listening for you. Oh, we'll be playing some happy songs tonight. Y'all ready? Are y'all ready for that? This is Our Common Ground at Blog Talk Radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. You are our mothers, you are our sisters, you are our daughters. AIDS is the leading cause of death for black women ages 25 to 34. But there are things you can do to help. Prevention is power. Get educated, get tested, get treated. Help stop AIDS. This is Janice Graham thanking you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground, asking you to support the Black Report Agenda. Get a subscription. Stop by blackagendareport.com. Our friends Glenn Ford and Bruce Dixon are listening for you. Support the news that you can use. The Black Agenda Report. Join us here at Our Common Ground in our effort to keep them, to support what they do. Support all independent media. I'm Janice Graham, speaking truth to power and ourselves. We are the difference. Many people here know that. 
America is America today that many people can bear because of the civil rights movement. Not the Navy or the Marines or the Supreme Court. Huh? We didn't ask for an appeal. We took it. Trying to make it real compared to what... This is our Common Ground, celebrating 20 years broadcasting both and black. I'm Janice Grant. We're so glad to have you with us tonight at our Common Ground with our guest, the author, Jeff Charlotte, and Jim Girock of Leap. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. The wrath of God, preachers filling us with pride. They all trying to teach us what they think is right. They really got to be some kind of nut. I can't use it. I'm trying to make it real compared to what. And thank you for being with us here at our Common Ground tonight, the first day of October. We want to tell you that next week we will be meeting here at our common ground with Marsha Coleman Adebaya. As a young black MIT PhD social scientist, Marsha Coleman Adebaya landed her dream job at the EPA working with Al Gore assisting post-apartheid South Africa. But when she tried to get the government to investigate allegations that a U.S. multinational corporation was responsible for the details of hundreds of South Africans mining vanadium, a vital strategic mineral, she found that the EPA was the first line of defense for the corporation. When the agency stonewalled, Coleman Adebayo blew the whistle. How could she know that the agency with the hippie-like logo would use every racist and sexist trick in their playbook in retaliation? And she will be with us to talk about her experience at EPA as a whistleblower and her book, No Fear, A Whistleblower's Triumph Over Corruption and Retaliation at the EPA. Thank you so much for being with us. If you are new to us, this is our common ground. We are the Black Thinkers Sanctuary. We are the Black Goodwill Sanctuary, speaking truth to power and ourselves. And we want to thank Brother Brock for being with us and Della Prosa. Thank you so much for being with us. The Dean is here, Doc Don and Shaka Zulu, smooth operator. Saxy Man, Stephen C. of Colorado, and we have a number of guests. And, of course, my friend and the talk daddy of Blog Talk Radio, TruthWorks Network, Alpha of the Alpha Show. We also want to tell you that TruthWorks Network, which is a product of our Common Ground Communications, will be welcoming Enter the Lion's Den with Lion's X Den. Swag Talk Radio at TruthWorks Network at the end of the month. And let's go right in here. If you'd like to join our chatters, um, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. I'm Janice Graham, and I'm the host of 
this and we're trying to make it real for what we got. Uh, let's see, 908, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you very much. Uh, it, it's just Michelle. I keep getting cut off, so I just call back. Oh, okay. I will put you on home. Okay. And we also want to tell you that uh, our common ground really needs your help. You're listening. Is there a Christmas song or something about, are you listening? Maybe if I sing it, you all will remember. Would you please, if you get our newsletter, forward it to friends. Post it on your Facebook page. Twitter about our show. We need as much help here as we can. It does, it, it takes, there is a lot of work that goes into uh, having a, a Jeff Charlotte or getting Leap to come on and talk about um, some of the things that uh, uh, will be going on. In this second segment, uh, we're going to be talking about the new Ken, Ken Burns PBS documentary, which brings prohibition lessons to modern America. It will premiere on PBS tomorrow night. And um, we asked Leap to uh, provide us with um, someone who could uh, talk to us uh, about it um, and what it's going to mean in terms of what it's going to mean in terms of how America will now think about this issue of prohibition as more politicians and world leaders declare, declare willingness to consider ending the war on drugs leap a group of law enforcers who fought that war is saying that the new Ken, Ken Burns PBS documentary about alcohol prohibition premiering tomorrow night provides an important lesson for today's prohibition on marijuana and other legal drugs. Now, most of you know our friend Neil Franklin. Uh, he has been on this show numerous of times. We consider him a friend he is a retired Baltimore narcotics cop who now heads up LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And one of the things that he said uh, about the Ken Burns' uh, prohibition documentary is that just, quote, just as then, today's prohibition on drugs doesn't accomplish much to reduce harmful use and only serves to create gruesome violence in the market where none would exist under non-criminal regulations. Advocates are pointing out the parallels between the repeal of alcohol prohibition and today's debate about ending the war on drugs. And you certainly can call into our number, 347-838-9852, Talk with us about your impression. Uh, there are a number of things. These people at LEAP, uh, Judge Gray, who's been on the show, uh, Jim Girard, Girard, and I know I'm, I'm just 
um, massacring this man's name, and I'll ask him when he joins us uh, how to pronounce his name. But one of the things that I'm feeling is that somewhere in the background there are people, powerful people, who have an, uh, 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 a vested interest ensuring that the work of LEAP doesn't go forward. I mean, when you look at the number of people who actually have experience in communities across this country who understand the impact of criminalizing marijuana and some other illegal drugs, and not having a good, sensible public policy about that, and the tax dollars that we put in, there's got to be somebody who's making money on the war on drugs. That's what I'm trying to get through, get to. So let's take a look at before we bring um, Jim Jarrock onto our common ground. Let's take a look at what this PBS Ken Burns the the famous documentarian, um, film um, documents, uh, what he is going to accomplish in this newest PBS uh, presentation. From Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. It was exactly what America wanted, and it caught us completely by surprise. It turned citizens into criminals and criminals into kings. It changed the very nature of our democracy twice. Prohibition. What a stupid idea it was that people actually thought you could get away with this that you could actually ban alcohol, completely eliminate its usage in American society. It's, it's a preposterous idea. Virtually every part of the Constitution is about expanding human freedom, except prohibition, in which human freedom was being limited. And we get in trouble. It was a struggle between small towns and big cities, the wets and the tries with the whole country caught in the middle. It's not that sin is so terrible, it's that sin is very attractive. And that's why we're always tempted to do it. So what you need then is to help people. And if necessary, sometimes you have to make sin illegal. What it would mean in practice was going to have to be worked out through the legal system. Because to pass a law in the real world means nothing. To enforce the law means everything. You drank to show that you were a man, but you get drunk and all of a sudden you can't provide for your family, you can't do your job. It was a time when women found their voice and helped to change the nation. The women gather in front of a saloon and they start praying. And the movement takes off like wildfire. And our greatest heroes were also our greatest criminals. You cannot legislate morality. In legislating and attempting to legislate morality, you create opportunities for people who do not follow the law. It fueled the jazz age and made the 20s roar. It was the beginning of the time 
when boys and girls slept together. There was quite a lot of that going on, which astounded me from my innocent background. Discover the true story of America's great experiment. There was a myth of the person who breaks the law when it's a stupid law uh, to give people what they want. Once the government begins forbidding things, then somebody will come along and say, I got it. Step around the corner. Don't miss the new film from Ken Burns and Lynn Novak, Prohibition, only on PBS. And Jim Gerard, welcome to our common ground. And please pronounce your name. <laughs> Uh, Janice, it's good to be with you. My name is Jim Girak. Oh, I've been saying it right. No, I thought I was mangling your name. Thank no, you so much for joining us tonight. It's a pleasure uh, to be with you. And please give all of our regards to Neil Franklin, your executive director. He has been a friend of this show for many years. I can't tell you how many times we have had him as guest and um a couple of years ago, he was a regular guest every Friday night with us. Well, so, he's, um, he's he's coming to Chicago, the home of Prohibition, uh, uh, Monday, and I'll be with him for two days as we make the rounds uh, in uh, Chicago trying to change uh, our second round of Prohibition, Prohibition 2. Yes, yes. Now, tell us what you think, uh, how America will respond and will they make the connection between what they see in the Ken Ken Burns's uh documentary and marijuana and other illegal drugs which I'm not sure what they are. <laughs> well, I, I really look problem. I look forward to uh, the public being able to see this document uh, documentary that's been put together because uh it, the first round of prohibition was really motivated by uh, an altruistic uh, reason. We're going to help society. We're going to help our fellow man. Uh, it was a religious uh, motivated effort uh, to, to to provide for the public health, safety, and welfare. And, of course, what we found with prohibition the first time around was that it made things worse instead of better, uh, that, 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 that people were overdosing, killing themselves on, on bad booze. Uh, they were shooting each other in the street, fighting over who was going to control the business. Al Capone was making $2 billion a year at the height of his empire in today's money. $2 billion. And, and, wow. and of course, the, the, the booze flowed uh, for some uh, 14 years under the table instead of on top of the table. And, and now we're doing exactly the same thing. Uh, with the prohibition of drugs. Again, it, it was an altruistic uh, take care of society, look out for your, your brothers, save the kids motivation, which put this the second round of drug war in place, and it has the same problems. The difficulty mm-hmm. is that we, we replaced the Tommy gun with the AK-47. Instead of people hanging off Packard running boards, we got them hanging off of SUVs as they do their drive-by shootings. Uh, and, and we we corrupt the police. We feed the gangs. Uh, we we had a peace conference in Chicago because the violence in the drug business is so bad uh, uh, in 1993. And and I was reading a book uh, called The Last uh, Call, 
by, by Daniel uh, Okrent, who, who had collaborated with Ken Burns. Uh, they, one was doing the film and one's doing the book on prohibition at the same time. And, and in it, I, I learned that five days after the St. Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago, that uh, leaders in five cities uh, and the police called for a peace conference, the okay. same kind of gang meetings that we had here in Chicago to try to stem the, the violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, Are you making any progress in terms of working with, uh, influential leadership in in urban areas, especially like Chicago, uh, San Francisco, Houston, Miami. Are you making any progress with just some regular people understanding what this is all about? Well, we we definitely are. Here in Chicago, for example, we have a new African American president of the Cook County Board, Tony Preckwinkle, and for the first time, we have pot tickets being issued. Uh, the kids in unincorporated area, instead of arresting them, uh, putting them in jail, and stamping them as a as a convict with a criminal record. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we've got Reverend Jesse Jackson, who, uh, in his column in the Chicago Sun Times, called for an end to the drug war. That was June of this summer. Uh, Tony Preckwinkle uh, called for an end to the drug war. Father Flager, a well-known uh, 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 priest. At St. Sabina, at a Catholic parish here in Chicago, has called for an end to the drug war, and he was a staunch supporter of prohibition. So things are definitely changing, and then even on the national scene, we've got presidential candidates on the Republican and Democratic side calling for an end to the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. And it's not because people... And do they understand what that means? Well, some of them better than others. Yeah, Mm mm-hmm. Some of them better than others. Now, what about, I know one of the toughest turfs would be the black church. Um, (laughs) uh, And it's a tough turf on a number of arenas, in a number of arenas. But uh, we have have talked about that on this program, that you have people whose, whose neighborhoods, whose communities have been absolutely ravished by the war on drugs on one hand, but the drug war on communities on the other. You see, we we can have safe streets or drug prohibition, but we can't have both. And Mm -hmm. and the people themselves are the ones who, who supported this drug war, and the politicians follow because the politicians want to collect the, the citizens' vote. So, so to a, to the politician, drug war has meant a way to collect votes. To the drug gangs and the cartels, prohibition is the foundation for the business. Uh, and, and ironically, the good guys on the law enforcement side and the prison contractors and the drug treaters are on the same side of the prohibition issue as the drug dealers and the, and the drug cartels because of of the economic benefit that flows from fighting the war on drugs. You yeah. know, if, if yeah. at one point during the 1990s, the fastest-growing housing in the United States was prisons. So if you're a prison contractor, are you in favor uh, of the drug war? Sure. If you're a subcontractor, uh, if, if you're uh, hired to work in drug court, 
and we have more judges, more prosecutors, more public defenders, more probation officers, parole officers. We've got somebody who's taking the urine samples. We've got some lab that's got a contract to do the testing. Uh, we've got radio and TV and newspaper and the mass media getting hundreds of millions of dollars a year to put anti-drug advertising on. So is the media in favor of the drug war? Well, sure, they're benefiting from it. We have mayors and, and, and city councils across the country who split the take when when they uh, seize uh, money in a, in a drug deal or, or property, uh, real estate, a uh, boat, a car, half the money goes to the local agency and half goes to the Fed. So mm-hmm. with, with huge amounts of money coming into cities and villages, well, are you in favor of the drug war? Well, sure. A town a short distance from me where there's virtually no crime, they just put up a $4 million police department. It didn't cost the taxpayers a penny. Uh, because they used forfeited drug money. The, the, the problem is that you got to have drug war in place so that now you're tempting these Mexican drug cartels to come in and who have now taken over a thousand of our largest cities in the United States who in, in the wholesale distribution of, of illicit drugs. So, so the now, price of this prohibition you, is huge. Yes. Uh, when you say that, I mean... It certainly reflects the uh, the the national framework of hypocrisy in our politicians and in our government officials at the highest level. It, 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 there's there's no doubt about it. We're all suffering from the hypocrisy syndrome in this country. But when you talk about illegal drugs, uh, the only one that I I, I mean, what, what drugs are we talking about so people understand? You're talking about marijuana. Well, right now we have a national prohibition on, on, on co- cocaine, on heroin, on methamphetamines, on, on date, date, date uh, 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 rape drugs. Rape uh, drugs. Uh-huh. We, we, we've got uh, marijuana. Uh, we've got methamphetamine uh, that, that's all prohibited. So as soon as you prohibit something, you create a market for it. And and when someone consumes one of these drugs, and some of them, of course, are more dangerous than others, uh, marijuana, of course, is very benign and, in fact, helpful to the health uh, of many people. But but some of these other drugs that are even, uh, well, much more dangerous, I would say marijuana is a medicine more than, more than being harmful, but the, these other drugs, uh, when you prohibit them, you now have people who want them and they're consuming them. They're doing it in the dark with no label, no yeah. government regulation, no control, sold out of a of a park or the back of a trunk or an alley instead of out of a fixed place of business by a person who's licensed, who's got to be of a certain age with no criminal background, selling to only people who are 21 years of age or older. So, So we end up with... With with people overdosing uh, and and some dying uh, because they don't know what they're consuming or eating. Yes. But the yes. irony of prohibition is that when you prohibit something, you give up the right to regulate it. And drugs are too dangerous to leave unregulated and uncontrolled. Right yes. now, we've delegated that control to the street gangs and the drug cartels who decide what drugs going to be sold, where it'll be sold, how much it's going to cost, how old you got to be to to get it. And of course, there is no age. And, and as a result, with the second round of prohibition that we're suffering right now, 
it's easier for kids to get heroin and cocaine and methamphetamine than it is to buy a six-pack of beer or a pack of cigarettes. Wow. You're listening to Our Common Ground, and our guest in this segment is Jim Jirock. He is a member of the Board of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, LEAP, and he is a former Cook County prosecutor and is now a practicing attorney. Jim, can you take some calls? Sure. Okay. 972, you're on the air. Thank you for waiting. I respect you. 972? Okay, I'm going to put you back on hold, and I'm going to go to 773 out of Chicago. You're talking to your former county prosecutor in Cook County who has the good sense to understand what the war on drugs has done in this country. What say you? Well, thank you, Janice, for bringing me back, um, and welcome to your guest. Uh, he's absolutely right. This war on drugs, is it's more profitable to appear to be fighting the war on drugs than to actually fight it. And it's more profitable for, uh, like you said, you know, you've got the prisons, you've got the drug testers. It's a... It's an industry. It's an industry. It's a, 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 a huge industry, you know, with tentacles that go in each and every direction. It 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 basically shapes and forms the, I would have to say, the structure of our communities. And this is this is, I mean, it's devastating to the African American community simply because we are at the very bottom of the rung. It it basically has devastated our community. Because it's easier to medicate us and keep us, you know, in that uneducated, uh, I would have to say, ignorance about the issue. Well, That's why I believe that this, these, uh, this documentary is so valuable because this is not just about, you know, uh, I think it draws a great parallel to alcoholism and the prohibition of it and how it was so easily uh, repealed because it affected most of the people that it was affecting were white. And they could they knew that the destruction would be irreversible. But the, when you get when you get you know, this modern day prohibition, these drugs are concentrated in our community, introduced yeah. to our community. And it has a far more devastating effect than being generationally dependent on welfare. But Alpho and Jim, when you think that, I know I'm in the third season of watching Boardwalk Empire, which, which really is a series on HBO about prohibition and how it caused political corruption in this country. And on the other hand, I'm a big fan of Breaking Bad, where you have meth uh, a meth lab uh, cartel in America, in Arizona, going on, and you can see the the you can see how the criminality creates an industry fed by greed of individuals who just don't care about other people. 
Well, that's not the whole thing. And, and I suggest to my audience, um, Breaking Bad is a wonderful TV series. Uh, you should catch up on it, and you should. And I've been telling Alpha this for for years. Um, and Boardwalk Empire really tells the history of prohibition and how it connected up to sports and um, elitism in, in in this country as well as um, how it had, it was just so out of control and so criminal, uh, the prohibition of alcohol, that this country had to do something, and I am not seeing, Jim, why people are not connecting the dots on marijuana and the drugs that you outlined. Well, uh, Janice, I think they are are starting to connect the dots. And Alpho, uh, you know, he comes from Chicago apparently. And and what he's talking about here is we have some high schools where 90% of the kids are dropping out of, out of school, not finishing. You know, we tell these kids, don't do drugs, stay away from drugs, don't sell drugs. And then we slide a pot of gold next to the choice we tell them not to take, and we're surprised that so many are choosing the bad alternative. It is our policy that facilitates the gangs and tempts the kids to do the wrong thing. And so our preachers and and our teachers and our politicians need to start saying we need to take back our kids. And if we take back our kids by eliminating the temptation that we put in front of them, by eliminating this prohibition and this drug war, we will in turn take back our streets. We will end the violence. We'll end the corruption. We'll end money uh, that's now being frittered away on prisons that can start going for schools and job training and drug treatment and home daycare and things that matter. But but right now we're destroying a, a society. We're stamping so many kids as convicted felons. We're turning our country into a nation of prisons, supposedly the land of the free, with the highest rate of incarceration in any country in the world, with 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. You're absolutely right. We have generations of kids who see no other way to survive economically than to sell drugs. They feel that that is an option. The whole problem of some of these, the whole problem with prohibition, these, it's about the money. We have yes. tempted people to do the wrong thing, and if if they do the wrong thing, we we reward them with endless profits. We had a drug dealer from Mexico come to the United States uh, a couple of years ago on on a vacation or trip. We arrest him. We go back to his house. We find twenty. $208 million in a bedroom and $100 bills, filling up two-thirds of the room. They didn't even count mm-hmm. the money. They weighed it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, for those of you who are listening, we're doing a full two hours with representatives, and I hope it will include Jim. Neil Franklin will be with us on October 15th. Uh, by that time, we would have watched most of the documentary, and we can discuss some of the uh, features of the documentary, but to talk about how important this is. And one of the things that we don't see, we don't see inside the lives of the children who get involved in street 
com- uh, uh, the street economy, the economy of drugs, out of a sense of survival. If you go into some of these small communities, not even small, medium-sized communities across this nation, white and black and poor, and see that adults, people who care about these children, have to turn their heads because they do need food. They do need a way of paying the rent and oh. getting transportation to get their get to their jobs. You so know. we sit around and we criticize parents and say, well, the parents ought to take control. Well, you know what? We have an economy where the parents don't have a job. And we are giving... We are well, giving largest to 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 this industry. Janice, certainly uh, the economic uh, circumstances of some people uh, make make it more tempting to to go into the drug business. But I have to say, as a practicing attorney, I represented a, a child in a sex abuse case, and I made him a millionaire at the age of seventeen. A year later, he comes back to me, and he's selling cocaine gets arrested and they got him in three, three controlled sales. And I say, why in the world are you selling drugs? He comes from a, a Catholic family, a white family, a well-to-do neighborhood. He's got a, a million dollars in the bank. Why are you selling drugs? He says it's exciting. The government gave me it a chance becomes, to make money and I'm taking him up on it. Yeah, so, it becomes so, a part of the culture. I've I, I got a businessman. He owns he owns a forklift business. Never been in trouble in his life. He's in his fifties. He owns a home. Vietnam uh, vet taking care of a disabled vet. Got a daughter. He's taking care of. He comes in. He said, "I should have come to you, Jim. I was embarrassed." He said, "I've been arrested for selling cocaine uh, in, in a tavern to friends, and ends up selling to to an narcotic agent. Yeah. Now he's going to the penitentiary for some years." So yeah. it, Jim, it, the I poor sure people are tempted, but the but the well-to-do people as well. Yeah. So it's a sweet temptation. Jim, I wish we had more time, and I do look forward to you coming back on October 15th uh, with Neil uh, to talk about this most important. It, it, it is a sweet temptation, and it has become um, a very dull gray thread through the fabric of our lives. And we have got to do something, and we've got to press the political machine in order to solve this problem. Uh, the people brought in the war on drugs, and the people can vote it out. And if their politicians yes. won't do that for them, get new politicians. That's right. Jim Jarrock of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. We look forward to talking with you on October 15th, and thank you so very much for alerting us to this documentary, uh, documentary that will premiere tomorrow night on PBS. Janice, good to be with you. Good to be with uh, with you and have you at our Common Ground, Jim. And we'll All see right. you on the 15th. Thank you. Take care now. Thank you. Now, that's a man that knows what he's talking about, Alpha. He knows what he's talking about. Let's take sure. one more call. We only have a few minutes. 972, I've been flagging you. And this is the second call. Last call. I guess that might be a person that uh, got put on hold. Alpha, thank you for joining us. And I know that uh, Stephen C. in the in the chat room, he has been a huge advocate 
uh, of LEAP and the work that they do and prohibition against marijuana. And I think Jim makes an awful lot of sense. I think what the work of LEAP makes an awful lot of sense. But I wanted to uh, hold you on, Alpha, to talk to you to let our audience know Alpha is the host of the Alpha Show at TruthWorks Network, which is heard and broadcast from Blog Talk Radio. Uh, the Alpha Show broadcasts at 3 p.m. each Saturday. We have Architects of Change on Wednesday night at 9 p.m. with Elvin Dowling and Friends. And on Monday nights, we have Power Views, Reloading the Truth, the best of the inter-radio and TV and documentary audio that you can find on the Internet relative to um, black activism and empowerment, culture, and education. It really is listen and learn radio. Alpha, but Alpha and I wanted to both together to announce to you that Enter the Lion's Den is going to be joining the lineup at TruthWorks Network, and we wanted to together welcome Lions X-Den to TruthWorks Network at the end of the month. And we hope that you will join him on Thursday and Friday nights. Um, The time has not been set yet, but I think uh, we're going to be calling it Talk Radio with a Black Swagger or something like that, Alpha, huh? Sounds good. That was good. You like that? (laughs) Well, we've got to go, and I hate to be rushing out here. Join us at TruthWorks Network on Monday night for Power Views. We're going to be uh, presenting the interview with um, Michelle Alexander and Michael Eric Dyson talking about Troy Davis. I'm Janice Graham. This is Our Common Ground, and we hope that you have a safe, prosperous, productive week. We thank Jeff Charlotte for being with us and Jim Giroff of LEAP, and we thank you for being with us. A call from um, Michelle, and for all of you in the chat room, we thank you for joining us. And just be safe. Be powerful. Be bold. We'll see you next week with Marsha Coleman Abiato. You've been tuned to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. And don't forget, here, Our Common Ground, each Saturday, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Have a great weekend.